welcome to the Film Geezers Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Film Geezers Podcast. I'm Robbo and I'm joined as always by Cheeto. Hello. And this week uh, we're going to discuss uh, the greatest uh, film intros or opening scenes in films. Um, we've each compiled our own lists. The first scene in the film is an integral part of its storytelling. It establishes the tone, the setting, or sometimes introduces the central characters. It gives the viewers motivation to keep watching. A great beginning gets you in the mood and builds from there. And it's no coincidence that the films on our list are generally considered great films. Yeah. So, you know, a great opening scene is like your first taste of heroin. <laughs> Just <laughs> hooks you. Obviously yeah. not, but you know, it hooks you in and gets you. You want to. You mm. want to know more. As a, as a purpose, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, um, definitely. So, um, I want to. I want to actually put you on the spot now and get you to go first. Okay. That's <laughs> right. Something different, isn't it? Yeah. Well, my first film is once again. It's no surprise i don't think that i've chosen it but it's halloween and uh i don't know what like i always end up choosing like either halloween star wars dark Knight, but it's just because like any topic we do they're just so great and like halloween just happens to have one of the greatest intros of all time yeah. so what we're gonna do is we're gonna uh explain in great detail what the intro scene is and then we're obviously gonna go afterwards and and uh our thoughts of it you know mm. talk about our thoughts yeah. of the scene and whatnot. so right as the opening credits end we're greeted with a black screen the camera moves out behind a tree revealing the Myers house the camera slowly moves up and to the side of the house the camera looks into one of the side windows here we see a woman and a man falling around they go upstairs from a salon time the camera begins to move to the back door it enters the house the camera walks towards a drawer in the kitchen a hand comes from behind the camera and reaches out to grab a huge kitchen knife. At this point, we realise it's a POV of someone. As this person grabs the knife, they almost admire it. The person, now with knife in hand, moves towards the stairs, still at this slow pace. They narrowly avoid the man descending the stairs. He leaves the house. They now begin to make their way up the stairs. As they get to the top, they pick a, up a clown mask and put it on. Now we can only see out of the two eye holes, as would the person wearing it. They start to make their way towards a woman singing until they eventually are at her door. They begin to walk towards her. She is nude. She lets out a Michael. We now know the person's name. Michael begins to repeatedly stab the woman, her letting out screams of pain. As he's stabbing her, he looks at the knife and once again almost admires what he's doing. As the woman falls to the ground, he turns around and walks out of the room, still at the same pace as before. He descends the stairs and walks out the door. He is greeted with the car. Two adults get out. A man and woman walk towards Michael, the man saying Michael in a confused tone. The man takes off his mask. As Michael has his mask removed, the camera angle switches to reveal from the front of Michael. We see it's a little boy. He has a blank stare, not even acknowledging his parents. He's still holding the blood-soaked knife he just used to kill his sister. The camera then begins to rise over the characters and we should transition into the next scene. Right, believe it or not, Halloween was only the fourth movie to use the Steadicam, better known as the Panaglide. Dean Cundey, the cinematographer, used it to perfection, and this film was the reason why it was, an ever, was made an ever-present piece of kit for any production. Dean Cundey also gets the lighting spot on. The way in which he illuminates the screen, it creates these dark corners which just adds to the suspense of the scene. 
Now, speaking of the suspense, the intro, the intro scene to Halloween is affected by the serious sense of dread. We know that something is going to happen. What we don't know is what is going to exactly happen and who it is going to happen to. During the intro scene, we're greeted with this score, Michael Kills Judith. This piece of music really helps to add to the tension and it only helps gel the scene together. It also shows not just the directing, but the musical prowess of John Carpenter. I think that John Carpenter made a great decision to have the intro one continuous shot. I mean, technically it isn't because there's a few hidden cuts here and there, but it once again only adds to the already festering tension. It also makes the scene much more realistic because it's like we're watching it in real time. And lastly, John Carpenter adds so much character development to Michael, even when not that much is going on. He shows that Michael, even at his young age, stalks his victims, something he does as an adult, and Carpenter portrays him as a sort of odd human being. You also hear the iconic heavy breathing once he puts on the mask. Speaking of the mask, I think the mask alone adds so many layers to Michael, because it's almost like he isn't human anymore, that he doesn't have an identity, all he was brought on this earth to do was kill. And that's why I think it is one of the greatest mm-hmm. intros of all time. And I, you, when you type, <coughs> say on Google, you type in like best intros, it's always on there, isn't it? You know? yeah. But it just, I think that's the quintessential, like it just starts the movie off, doesn't it? You know? sets the yeah, tone straight it's, away yeah <clears throat> and it's, it's one that's been often it's often covered isn't yeah. it just um, that one long continuous yeah, shot you know shot yeah leading into a <clears throat> an opening scene but yeah. yeah no these are the main reasons why it's on my list and like I said this is just starts off with a bang and it's and it's obviously the intro to, yeah. a, to a much iconic film so yeah. right mm-hmm. Good your first one yeah, my first one. Um, I'm doing these in chronological order. Yeah, same so, way I am as well. Um, my first one is uh, 1970s Patton. Yeah. So, in 1944, General George S. Patton began rallying the troops of the United States Third Army by delivering speeches of motivation for the battles to come. Patton had taken command of the fighters shortly before the Allied invasion of France, and it was through his hard-nosed, vulgar way of communicating that he gained respect during his time in World War Two. In the 1970 biopic, which chronicles his life, we're given the same image of Patton that we've read about in the history books, from his trials in the Tunisia campaign where he led the Battle of Kasserine Pass to the German operational failure at the Battle of the Bulge. We see the general as an exemplary wartime strategist. Lead actor George C. Scott encompasses the tactically attuned, politically inept folk hero with all the profanity necessary to pull off his arrogant persona. It's a performance which gained Scott recognition across the board, but it was his patriotic address which got things into gear early on. The actual speech to the United States Third Army wasn't actually one speech, but several given over months, having been gradually built upon each time. The speech given in the opening scene is a condensed version of the real addresses, with much of the foul language cut from the film. In the first shot, a large, vibrant American flag sits behind a stage. Pan walks up the stairs and into the centre of the frame. He salutes the imaginary audience and attendants and speaks as if the viewers were the soldiers. Before walking off stage, his words transition into a warm sentiment, expressing his pride in leading such brave men into battle. It's with these last few words that Patton begins, and the battle cry of a decorated career rings out. So it is, um, I was actually reading that Scott didn't want that scene to appear at the opening of the film. Okay, yeah. Because he's like, he thought that was a really good scene. Mm. And they just couldn't top it. Right. Okay. I <laughs> so yeah. Schaffner said um, they weren't going to. They were going to use it at the end. Yeah. Um, and obviously tricked him <laughs> into doing that. But yeah. I mean, 
for a biopic, it's it's odd because it only covers like I think three years of of his life. Yeah, which is a very short amount of yeah, time, isn't it? Specifically in World War Two. Yeah, he was kind of a an eccentric, colourful character. You know, he wrote poetry. He believed in reincarnation. Mm. Um, he often got into trouble for saying the wrong thing. Um, in the in the film, he is reprimanded for striking a soldier who was suffering from shell shock. In yeah. reality, it was two soldiers that he he hit, and he had to apologise to them and the medical staff, and um, because he he felt that <clears throat> it was dis- dishonourable to to uh, you know he called these guys cowards rather than yeah. Um, and in the end, he actually got removed from um, his command because he suggested that they were fighting the wrong side, that they should be fighting the Soviets. <laughs> so I don't know if he had a premonition towards yeah, the Cold, Cold War, War maybe. Maybe, yeah. but he kind of got into trouble because he said, yeah, we should team up with the Germans and fight the Soviets. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's quite, because he actually, he, I think he died not shortly after the, mm. the Second World War. There is a... There is actually a, maybe the TV movie called The Last Days of Patton, and that actually stars George C. Scott again. Oh wow! Which is kind of unusual, isn't it? Yeah. That thing. Um, but yeah, it won. Uh, it won Best F- Director for Schaffner, uh, Schaffner, Franklin J. Schaffner. Yeah, and George C. Scott won an Oscar, but he famously turned it down. Oh wow! So he's the first. I think he was the first, but before Brando. Yeah, it was before yeah. Brando, wasn't it? Yeah. So yeah, so that's yeah. It's just a, it's a brilliant film. A brilliant opening, mm. opening to a brilliant film and introduces the character. I must admit, really I've, well. I've only ca- I've only caught like the last hour of this, and yeah. I already I can see that there's um, especially with the character pattern that he is such a yeah. Um, he's like a colourful character. Mm. He's very, quite outlandish yeah. at times, you know, but he's very well written and he has a lot of yeah. depth to him so yeah no and i really need to watch it it's quite because i've i've actually <clears throat> been a bit of a war buff i yeah. i've actually heard um some <clears throat> of some of Pan's speeches oh well, yeah and he has he's actually got a quite high-pitched voice does he yeah so you very, expect it, would you? very unlike george c scott yeah. but yeah because he's he's got quite that yeah. vibrato you know yeah. but well yeah definitely to catch that yeah. but well my next film is jurassic park another scene as the opening credits end, the first shot of some trees being disturbed, we're then shown the faces of the workers of Jurassic Park. They all show concerned expressions. We then go back and forth between the trees and the workers, one of them being Robert Muldoon, played by Bob Peck. He doesn't have a concerned expression, more of a scolding smolder. That's how, that's how I'd describe it, you know. The disturbance in... <laughs> was that you, were you doing that then? <laughs> yeah, just like the corner of my eye. The disturbance in the trees happens to be a forklift moving, moving a huge steel unit through them. What's inside? We don't know. As the forklift lowers, said unit at the foot of what appears to be a housing unit for some sort of animal. Totals appear on the screen. They read Isla Nublar, 120 miles west of Costa Rica. We then see a POV from inside of the unit, looking out at the workers from one of the holes. The workers are armed with guns and cattle prods. Whatever's POV it is, it is making what can only be described as angry growls. It then makes these screeching noises. As it does this, the workers cow back. Robert orders the workers to push the unit forward so it's connected to the housing unit. While this is happening, the creature inside makes another screeching noise. Once again, the workers cow back. Robert orders them back to the unit. The workers seem reluctant. As they attach the units together, Robert orders the gatekeeper to raise the gate. However, in doing so, the creature slams into the back of the unit, knocking it back away from the housing unit and throwing off the gatekeeper. 
the gatekeeper was on the floor right next to the now open unit. Can I do the line? Yeah, yeah, in a sec. All right. <laughs> the creature grabs and attempts to pull him in. The only reason he's not in the unit is because he's holding on to the rim of it. The other workers around rush to his aid, trying to pull him out. While others attack the creature with cattle prods, there's panic ensuing. Robert letting out, work her back. As more and more workers begin to attack the creature, it lets out one more screeching noise. We are shown that the creature inside is, the unit is in fact a velociraptor. As Robert is trying to pry the gatekeeper away from the velociraptor, the gatekeeper begins to slip from Robert's grip. He shouts out, Shoot her! <laughs> Robert's grip progressively loosening. He yells out another, Shoot her! <laughs> Gunshots are heard in the background, but it's too late as the camera as the camera cuts to a slow mo. Robert's grip of the gatekeeper becomes undone, and we hear the gatekeeper's last groans of pain. We then transition into the next scene. Thank you for that, by the way. <laughs> so the first thing I noticed about the scene is it's, it has like very ominous lighting. Um, it's almost like the lighting lighting is warning us that something bad is going to happen. Lighting is such an important thing, and it just goes to show that the scene could be perceived differently if it had different lighting. The music is so effective in this opening scene. I mean, um, obviously John Williams, yeah. you know, the legend. Uh, we start off with these big booming choir episodes followed by the eerie tones of the background. The music tells us that something very important is happening and that we don't know quite know the outcome of it, you know. This helps to put us on edge. Speaking of putting us on edge, the suspense is rife in this opening scene, just from the music alone, but also from the looks on the Jurassic Park workers' faces. Whether it is in the unit they are scared of, and in turn it makes us scared of. I also think that this intro is very foreshadowing. It's because as the workers messed up a relatively easy task in transferring a Velociraptor, that they aren't as prepared as they thought, or the fact that it isn't a great idea to harbour dinosaurs in the first place. Yeah. And that's the that's the biggest thing I take yeah. away from it, is the foreshadowing. Yeah. Because <clears throat> these shots from inside the, the cage, in there? Yeah. You know, the transport unit. And you can see how the the... Workers are very reticent about handling yeah. the Velociraptor. Well, even at the start when they're bringing the unit out, um, the, the looks on their face, they look really tense, yeah. they're on edge, you know. And really, like trans transferring it between one unit to another yeah. isn't that hard of a task and they still mess it up? Well, there's obviously, they have a process in place and the obviously process breaks down. Because in, in the scene, um, there's, light, there's lights, there's lighting system, so it's yeah. red. And as they push the unit, it acts. It comes on green like it's locked in, yeah. but then it isn't. So it's yeah. like maybe that's failing. So it yeah. just shows that they are nowhere near prepared as they were, yeah. and obviously that leads to the events in the film. The, but the reliance on automation and, yeah. and computers. But yeah, so yeah. so iconic, and the shooter line is just so oh, yeah. iconic, and yeah. it obviously well done by you. Thank but, you. <laughs> but, yeah, but no, it's just such an iconic scene, and really just kickstart the. And this thing, it because it, 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 it it's one of those scenes where it it doesn't kind of build on it. it cuts to you know the lawyer yeah. done it, going into the cave yeah. but it just keeps it in the back of your mind later when okay so it's going Jurassic yeah. Park's obviously failing and that happened previously so it just keeps it at the back of your mind doesn't yeah. it but it's yeah. such an iconic opening scene Seems and good. one of the best right your okay. next one my next one is The Godfather mm. 1972 so it's often revered as a crowning achievement in storytelling. Francis Ford Coppola's adaptation of Mario Puzo's The Godfather is a family saga about respect and the heights of prosperity built upon a life of corruption. The revelation that is Marlon Brando's performance as Vito Corleone has set a precedent for every actor who has followed. The story unravels as Vito's youngest son returns from World War II and is immediately swept up in the family business. This depiction of the Italian-American mafia as a feudal organisation ruled through crime has since become the blueprint for later films and television, 
but it's the story of Michael, played by Al Pacino, and his family that kickstarted it all. Every story has a beginning, and The Godfather starts like no other, with the introduction to one of cinema's most iconic characters. The first words of the film echo the sentiments of the Corleone family, as Amerigo Bonacera, an Italian-American undertaker, speaks of his belief in the America before asking the shadowy figure of Vito to enact vengeance against the men who were his daughter. The Don of the Corleone family responds to Bonacera's request by suggesting the man had never asked for his friendship, which he sees as a sign of disrespect. When the undertaker offers to become a friend of the Corleone family, Vito takes it on good faith that Bonacera can be trusted, and on the day of his daughter's wedding he strikes a new partnership. It's a gratuitous offer and a calming demeanour that makes Vito such a remarkable character. Despite his wealth and powerful status over his guest, he asks only for the loyalty from the man. He too believes in America, and because he has made a place for his family, he's willing to offer the same to anyone who chooses to befriend him. It's his traditional values that stand out above his criminal actions, as he's willing to, end, to do anything to protect those closest to him. And now as someone who's recently watched The Godfather, <laughs> yeah. it's like its own movie in yeah. its own, isn't it, you know? Because it, obviously it's an introduction to the central character, mm. and the central character's values, which are shared by his family, that he puts loyalty and friendship mm. um, above, you know, money. Because Bonacera, when he's talking to him, he, he clumsily offers to pay him, and the Godfather takes that as a, as almost as an insult. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't want money. He just wants this guy. This guy's his, his daughter's been attacked. He's been to the police. They can't do anything. So he goes to the Godfather and he wants the Godfather to kill him, kill these guys, and the Godfather won't. But then he says to you know you've never come to me before. You've never shown me any kind of loyalty or friendship. And then Bonacera, like I say, he clumsily sort of tries to offer him money, mm. which he sees an insult. Um, and then once Bonacera then, you know, um, I think, does he call him Godfather? Yeah, he does. And, you yeah. know, and then offers his, his loyalty to him, and that's all he wanted, ever yeah. wanted, was that. And then he says, yeah, you know, we'll see what we can do. And you see that... Um, Probably more in Godfather 2 when you've got the two parallel stories of um, it shows Vito coming to America as a young boy and how he becomes the Godfather, and that parallels Michael's, uh, you know, he. Uh, He's like wise. Yeah, in Godfather Part 2, um, I don't want to spoil it, but, mm. but Brando dies, and basically Michael takes over the family business because obviously Sonny's died in the first one, so he's yeah. the only real choice for that. And so you see his development then into that um, into that mantle of being the Godfather. So, yeah. But, yeah, just, it just introduces the character, and it kind of sets up the whole film, really. I mean, the thing that I take away is, is I've never seen an intro, because the intro, how long, how long would you say it is? It's about, about three minutes, three or four minutes. Yeah. But in that one seen there's so much character development happening yeah. with just Vito isn't there because yeah. there's, there's probably the first part of the scene he just sits there listening doing nothing Yeah, but then he's doing everything it's kind yeah. of yeah but, it's one of those um, performances I don't know if it's the camera work or it's, or it's Brandon's performance but you just know he's <coughs> he bosses the screen yeah. even though he's just yeah. there sitting there you know Yeah, but and it just gives so much character and development when he finally speaks and he's quiet and mm. you, you can tell the, the respect and the gravitas that he has yeah, he doesn't need to put on this no. like hard man image, you know, because no, he, he always he has that respect, yeah. you know. But no, absolutely brilliant, and and 
I don't know why it took me this long to watch it, but no, it's, it's yeah, hundred yeah. percent one of the best films ever made, and one of the best intros as well. So, really good. good choice. Right, shifting the tones. My next film is The Big Lebowski. <clears throat> as the opening credits end, we get a continuous shot moving towards the city of Los Angeles. While this is going on, we get a great opening monologue by Sam Elliott. He explains Jeff the Dude Lebowski and his hatred of LA. We see a tumbleweed travel through the streets and down the beach. We transition to the dude, played by Jeff Bridges. He picks up some milk and sniffs it to see if it's okay. We then see him write a check for 69 cents, the price of the milk. He then walks back to his apartment, and that's literally just the scene. It's yeah. a very short one, but there's, there's a lot I take away from it. Um, the first thing I realise about the scene is the music. It's a very laid-back, almost 50s-sounding tune, and it's no coincidence that the first words you could use to describe the dude as is laid-back. The intro shows so much of the dude's character by showing so little. First off, we hear the great Sam Elliott monologue describing the dude, but also the fact that he is shown sniffing a carton of milk before buying it. Also the fact that he pays for said milk, which happens to be 69 cents with a check. One, it's hilarious, and two, it's just great character development. Like I said before, in such a short scene, we already get a lot of laughs. I don't know how, but Jeff Bridges is just so naturally funny that even the sight of him just lazily walking down the shopping aisle is somehow funny. Pair that with the already mentioned milk carton and check scenes, and you've got one hell of a funny intro. And lastly, it just sets the tone for the whole movie. I know as soon as I watched the intro, I knew I was in for a good ride. That's why the movie intro. That's why movie intros are so important. That's why this one's so important. Because, like I said, when I first watched it, I didn't know what. To, I've heard all this thing. Cause it's a very weird film. If you think about it, I don't know what, like, what angle it's going to take, what, what road it's going to go down. And as soon as I watched the intro, although it's very short, maybe three, four minutes, it is. It just sets up this film. Yeah. So well. Well, like you say, he's. Um He's shopping in his uh, dressing gown yeah. and underwear, and like I say, he pays for the milk with a check. And so he's sixty nine cents. Yeah, and so you kind of you instantly know that he's a hippie. Don't yeah. you? you don't yeah. even have to, you know. I mean, this thing—it barely shows <laughs> anything, really. It's, yeah, it's barely yeah. nothing, but it, it 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 tells everything, you know. But that's why I think this intro is so great. And once again, it—I knew what type, what type of movie mm. I was going to be watching once I saw this intro and. That's the job of an intro to get you one into the movie, and two, it shows you what the movie is, and you know, so you stay connected with that movie. Mm. But yeah, honestly, one of my favorite, and once again, it's, it's generally funny as well. Like, you know, this 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 is geek, he's like tight. You know, the character if he's paying a check for six nine cents, you know. But yeah, it's so great and so much character development, and we get to hear Sam Elliott monologue. Mm. Who, who doesn't want to hear that? You know, yeah, but, no, yeah, yeah, short one, mm. but that's the reason why. Yeah, it's on my list. Yeah, good choice. Right. Thank you. Okay, my next one is probably going to be on most people's list. Jaws, mm. nineteen seventy-five. So in nineteen seventy-five, Steven Spielberg took terror to a new level when he made everybody afraid to go in the water. He sparked the phenomenon that would become killer shark movies and created a blockbuster <coughs> in the process. But the fear went beyond just the depths of the ocean. People grew suspicious of swimming pools or lakes, any nearby body of water that could have something lurking beneath. The fear was instilled by some simple underwater camera trickery and a reveal that Spielberg waited for the perfect moment to deliver. It all began with a teenage girl named Chrissy who drunkenly decides to go skinny dipping. It would be Chrissy's last swim and for many of the people who watched the film in the summer of 75, it would be their last for a while too. The brilliance of the first scene in Jaws is that we never actually see the shark. We know it's there from the name of the film, the numerous posters advertising the creature, and the point of view shot of Chris's legs wading in the water from underneath, but it still isn't shown. 
Instead, Chris is pulled down forcefully by the monster below. While her drunk male friend falls asleep on the beach, she cries out futilely for help. She makes it to a boy, and for a moment Serenity feels close enough to wash away the fear of the viewers, but the second is gone without much hesitation, and Chrissy is soon lost, never to be seen again. It's a nightmare-inducing thought that you could be left by yourself without anyone to hear your screams. In the ocean, there's nowhere to go, no shelter to be found. Jaws conjured those kind of fears in its viewers and left them forever wondering what could happen the next time they visit the beach. So, you know, there's been a lot written about um, Jaws and the making of Jaws Mm. um, and the sort of compromises that Spielberg had to um, make because the the shark just wasn't working. Yeah. Um, So I think this is one of those where the shark was, was supposed to have been seen, but because it wasn't working he had to compromise and say well how can we show the shark is there without it being there but for me that makes it even scarier because it's what you don't see so you've got this um, underwater view of Chrissy swimming which I think we've touched on in in previous uh, podcasts very reminiscent of Creature from the Black Lagoon and and I think Spielberg said that some of that has influenced, influenced him and then she's suddenly pulled under the water and you can see the confusion on her face as she doesn't really know what's quite happening. Yeah. And then she gets pulled under the water again and then suddenly you see her being dragged side to side and just being shaken like a rag doll. Um, and that, that is terrifying. Yeah. It, and what is more terrifying than something you can see is something <laughs> yeah. you can't see. Yeah. Um, and the fact that, you, you know, you can scream for help um, and no one can, and hear, no one can hear you scream. It's like you know. So like the alien thing. Yeah, no exactly. One, space, no one can hear you scream. So, yeah. So and once again, like you said, it, it the mo- the modern day fear of sharks all yeah. spawns from Jaws, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, even now, even even when I go swimming in the sea and I get I'll go out of my depth, there's always something in the back of it, my mind. What is below me? You know. Even though we live in England, yeah. <laughs> I think like a massive yeah, great white's yeah. gonna like. Yeah, it just yeah, it, it does. It does really um stay with you. Yeah. But no, once again another iconic and yeah. like you said, it's gonna be in a lot of people's list because yeah. it is it sets up the movie so well. Right. My next film is The Prestige. As the opening credits end, we are greeted with the sight of many top hats sitting on the floor in the middle of a forest somewhere. We then hear Alfred Borden, played by Christian Bell, say, Are you watching closely? We cut to several birds in cages. John Cutter, played by Michael Caine takes out one of the birds and shows it to a little girl who happens to be watching him perform. We quickly cut to Alfred in the crowd watching Robert Angier, played by Hugh Jackman, on stage. The curtains raise above him. Alfred is picked at random to check the contraption in which Robert is going to use for his trick. Alfred checks it and walks off stage. He reaches backstage. He is stopped by one of the security guards when he proclaims that he's actually part of the act. He then proceeds to take off the fake beard and moustache he was wearing in the crowd. He goes underneath the stage as Robert starts up the machine. We then quickly cut back to John placing the bird into a separate cage. We cut back to Alfred underneath the stage. He walks up to a glass box fit for a human. While this is going on, we can hear the sounds the contraption is making, while also seeing flashes of light from above. We cut back to John covering the bird cage with a piece of cloth. We see Robert enter the contraption just as we cut back to John who makes the bird along with the cage disappear. We then quickly cut back to Robert who is noticeably physically affected by the contraption 
A burst of lightning, lightning fills the theatre, and Robert falls through a trapdoor into the glass box. The glass box shuts. Oh, I forgot to mention, the glass box is filled all the way to the top with water. We cut back to John, revealing his trick to the little girl. We cut, by the way, there's a lot of cut backs, backs and forths in this intro. We cut back to the theatre. The crowd is confused. We cut back to John holding the bird. The little girl's face lights up. She starts to clap. We cut back to the theatre. Alfred is looking confused as he stares at the box. Robert is inside, screaming for help. While this whole intro is happening, we get a voiceover from John, played by, obviously, Michael Caine, explaining the different stages to a magic trick. Every great magic trick consists of three parts or acts. The first part is called the pledge. The magician shows you something ordinary, a deck of cards, a bird, or a man. He shows you this object. Perhaps he asks you to inspect it to see if it is indeed real, unaltered, normal. But of course, it probably isn't. The second act is called the turn. The magician takes the ordinary something and makes it do something extraordinary. Now you're looking for the secret, but you won't find it, because of course you're not really looking. You don't really want to know. You want to be fooled, but you wouldn't clap yet, because making something disappear isn't enough. You have to bring it back. That's why every magic trick has a third act, the hardest part, the part we call the prestige. Now once again, I think Nolan sets up this film brilliantly. He's able to do the genius thing of showing us what to expect from the film, but not giving anything away at all. Like I said, only a handful of directors possess the power to be able to do this. While Nolan sets up the film perfectly, he also sets the tone up perfectly. He's able to capture that Victorian feel. He also uses great lighting, and it almost has a filter on it to produce this unique look to the film. Nolan is able to show us a bit about the characters, you know, who they are, what they're like, and what role they play in the film once again. He does this while not even giving too much away. The intro is very mysterious, leaving us wanting more. This is what you want in an intro, is you want to be engaged from the start, especially in a film of this genre. We get a great monologue from Michael Caine, even by only talking. He shows us how much acting prowess he has. Also, he shows us a bit about the characters he is portraying. Nolan is able to plant points that will be answered later down the line, once again making us engaged looking for answers. And once again, this is an ability only a handful of directors have ever been able to execute right. Lastly, it's absolutely thrilling, a teaser of what's to come. Um, like I said, once again, it is it cuts back and forth from obviously Michael Caine to uh, Hugh Jackman and um, Christian Bale, and in a way, it puts you on edge because you, it's quite disorientating cutting back and forth from each scene. You don't really know. It's like you're a person in because mm-hmm. obviously it shows the theatre. It's like you're a person in the crowd, you know, watching it, and you do feel that as well. Yeah. But no, it's absolutely brilliant how he captures the whole Victorian feel, but he still makes it absolutely thrilling and yeah. One of my favorite films of all time. One of my well, favorite intros. Not, not having seen it yet, mm. it's on my list. Um, okay, I, I can't comment. Yeah, no, that's fine. Like, yeah, um, but yeah, no. Honestly, <coughs> if if anyone hasn't watched this, watch it because it's a brilliant film and a brilliant intro. Mm. Right. Cool. Okay, Apocalypse Now, nineteen seventy-nine. The smell of napalm in the morning may not be as enticing to some as it is to fancy for a coppola. In 1979, the director's loose adaptation of Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness introduced a darker side of War Gone Mad. It was a famously long and troubled production that finally brought Apocalypse Now to the screen. And by the time the release came, the film felt like more like a myth than any sort of reality. Still, the perilous journey of Captain Benjamin Willard and his crew heading up river to terminate the crazed Colonel Walter Kurtz is a look at the depravity of mankind during the Vietnam War. As Willard makes his way to neutral Cambodia to meet with Kurtz, who's become an idol among the locals, he meets unusual characters afflicted by the trials of battle. 
Among the chaotic happenings of the film are sinister acts of violence as lives and minds are lost to the outcome. A story so unrelenting deserves an equally hypnotic start, and that's what viewers got when they sat down to watch this masterfully crafted epic. The movie opens to the befitting sound of Jim Morrison in the doors as a forest is set ablaze with napalm and the end drowns out the noise. Helicopters ride over the ruins as the fires run wild. Images of Captain Willard lying in his room staring at a ceiling fan are superimposed over the burning trees. Willard narrates the scene, taking notice that he's still in Saigon. The scene was shot while Mark, actor Martin Sheen was actually drunk, giving it an authenticity that feels so close to how a war-affected mind would project itself. The beginning is a hallucinatory trip that's almost too real to be a true depiction of how war could work. But as the movie progresses, so does the darkness of the story. We delve deeper into the heart of the war-torn regions, never able to come back once the journey has become. Sorry, has begun. <laughs> well, once I've, I've never seen this. So yeah. All, all so, you. yeah, it's apocalypse now. Is you're not really sure if it's a pro-war or anti-war mm. film, and I kind of you kind of come at it from your own point, personal sort of point of view. Um, like I say, the opening of, of the film it just you've got a forest piece of forest that's just suddenly set alight by napalm and you've got helicopter rotors mm. that then dissolve into a ceiling fan so it's quite clever that and then you've got um obviously martin sheen laying on his bed in his saigon hotel um almost going mad really um and it's true they they shot it he actually got drunk for that <laughs> Yeah, I've seen that. I've seen um, that scene. Yeah, because the scene where he's actually sort of karate. Then he punches. Yeah, he punches a mirror yeah. and he cuts his hand, and that was all. That was all real, and so I guess going into a film like this, I mean, it it it, it was famously um, a troubled production. Mm. You know, uh, I think somebody died in one of the um, helicopter scenes, and um, you know, sets were destroyed by. Uh, by I think oh, they had a hurricane yeah. and things like that, um, and it I guess the opening does, you know, it reflects that chaotic I guess uh, filming as yeah. well. Um, I suppose it's authentic though, isn't yeah. it? Because it's, it's um, Michael Sheen was actually drunk, and I, yeah. I believe they were actually where where did they felt Philippines was it? Yeah, yeah. At the time, cocaine was legal, wasn't it? And they actually supplied it to Did the actors yeah they supplied it to the actors yeah. and stuff and that's what got them through it I know that they were in the, in the middle of the, the film in the Philippines because they, they, were, they were the only ones still using the Huey helicopters yeah. and they were in the middle of a civil war so they'd set up a scene and they'd call for the helicopters but then they'd gone to fight <laughs> yeah. you know and it's like just weird kind of how the hell they made, they made a film yeah. and, a, and a, a, well, a renowned film yeah. out of this as well you know it's yeah. mental but in his monologue, because obviously he's he's like an assassin, almost. He's he's sent to go and kill Marlon Brando's character, um, and he sort of in his monologue he's, he's he's saying about how how can he ever explain this to when he go, go goes home? How can he ever explain this to people? What he did during the war, and you know it, it's him trying to rationalise what he's doing. And I guess that's why he gets drunk, is just to to kind of uh, almost calm those 
voices in right. his head, yeah. you know. So yeah, it's, it it does tell you a lot about the character and about the film that you're about to watch. So once again, this is one on my list and the one yeah. I'm eager to watch. So no. My next film is Casino Royale, the 2006 one. I just thought I should mention beforehand, the intro is all in black and white. <clears throat> As the legendary opening credits end, we cut to a shady man going up an escalator into a building. We cut to his face as he anxiously waits to arrive at his floor. As the escalator arrives at the sixth floor, we cut to him walking into his flat. He opens the door and lets himself in, closing it behind him. He places his hat down and turns on the lamp. He notices that his safe has been opened. We hear a voice behind him say, M really doesn't mind you earning a little money on the side, Dryden. She'd just prefer it if it wasn't selling secrets. It's revealed to be James Bond, played by Daniel Craig. Dryden sits at his desk. He opens a drawer containing a handgun. He smugly says, If the theatrics are supposed to scare me, you have the wrong man, Bond. If M was so sure that I was bent, she'd, be, she'd have sent a double O. He then goes on to say about the benefits of being M and that he would have known if anyone had been promoted to double O status. Dryden then explains that Bond's foul shows no kills. He then says the famous line, it takes. Bond interrupts him with two. We quickly cut back to a flashback of Bond fighting a man in the bathroom. He then cuts back to Dryden pointing the handgun towards Bond. Dryden pulls the trigger but is left surprised as he has no bullets in his chamber. He has a concerned look on his face as Bond calmly holds up the magazine and says, I know where you keep your gun. Dryden then asks Bond how his contact dies. It cuts back to Bond choking him before submerging his head into a sink of water. We cut back to Dryden making smug comments about the contact. Bond pulls out a silenced hang on his own and shoots Dryden dead. As he gets up and leaves, we cut back to the flashback. As Bond is picking up his gun off the bathroom floor, the contact awakens, aiming his own gun at Bond. Bond turns around and we are greeted with the classic gun barrel shot. Now Martin Campbell shows that these newer Bond films have a very different tone and they are going in a totally different direction completely. You know, gone are the invisible cars, this is a brand new gritty era of Bond. The intro sets up Bond as the character we are going to get to know throughout the film, ruthless, calm and collected. The intro showcases great action and thrills, intertwined with the calm setting of Bond and Dryden's interaction. This is so hard to do as it can look clunky, if not executed right. Campbell gets his spot on and we are left with a perfectly cut together intro scene. This scene also has great natural dialogue you'd expect from two real people. Pair this with Bond's one-liners and you've got a winning formula. Going back to the action, it perfectly sets the film off on the right foot and it shows, that, shows you how far this new era of Bond is going to go in certain places. Campbell was able to do that same great Bond charm while also giving us something new. It's fresh, but at the same time, it isn't alien to the audience. It's also great because it explains how Bond obtained his double O status. A rare insight, I must say. Lastly, I think it's the best possible way to introduce a brand new Bond to the world. This made Daniel Craig an A-lister, and I generally don't think the film would be as good if it wasn't for this intro. So, Have you ever seen it? No, I haven't. No. Oh. No. Um, in, I think a lot of people, uh, forgetting nostalgia, I think Casino Wells is probably the best Bond film ever made. Um, and this intro is, is well-renowned. You know, you look online and it's always on uh, top 10 lists or whatnot. Mm-hmm. And it's somewhat different because it shows how Bond yeah. got his double O uh, double O status you know and once, like I said before it's, uh, it's gone are the hokey you know, 90s films um, this is a different era of Bond and it shows that within the first five minutes and, yeah. I mean it gets you completely hooked it's, it shows Bond as this like mysterious character you know obviously it helps because he's a new actor mm-hmm. Daniel Craig but it shows him as a mysterious character you want to see what he's like um, 
see if he's any good if he's up to the double O standards and whatnot. But no, definitely a brilliant, brilliant first act and uh, the actual the black and white, you know, just adds another level layer to it. So yeah, that's the reason why it's on my list. Cool. Right, my next one. Um, again, I think probably on a lot of people's list. Mm. Raiders of Lost Ark, mm. 1981. So, when you're the leading pioneer in archaeological findings and ancient civilizations, you open yourself up to a world of exploration and riches beyond your wildest dreams. What makes you a hero is keeping your ego in check, never letting the wealthy opportunities get to your head, always choosing wisdom over irrational, irrationally quick decisions. With all those chances to become rich are equal opportunities to die from booby traps and conniving backstabbers looking to cash in on your misfortunes. That's exactly what Indiana Jones, played by Harrison Ford, faces at the beginning of Raiders of the Lost Ark when he comes across a golden idol that several others seem to want just as badly as him. Steven Spielberg opens his classic adventure film in South America and from the poisonous darts found along the path it's clear to see the indigenous people of that area aren't welcoming to newcomers. When Indy's tour guide stroke translator pulls a gun out on the hero, we get a first look at the face of our protagonist and his signature bullwhip skills. As he makes his way to a closed pie cave with his remaining guide, he takes notice of some carefully placed traps triggered by stepping in the wrong place. Navigating his way through the deadly setup, he makes it safely to the idol, where he incorrectly measures a bag of sand to replace a statue's weight. The removal of the idol sets off a series of dangers, most notably a giant boulder, which chases Indy through the cave and out the other end. Despite narrowly escaping, he still comes up short-handed as his nemesis René Belloc, played by Paul Freeman, a known associate of the Nazi party, steals the fertility idol and takes credit for the work. Among action-packed openings, none can lay claim to the top spot more than Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, I mean, that just perfectly sets up the character. Yeah. Um, it's interesting you don't see his face until like a couple of minutes mm. into the intro um, you, is it you like see like the back of his head yeah. or you see the back of him you know you never yeah. s- or his face is like dark and by like shadows shadow yeah yeah but I think um, Spielberg wanted the whole look of Indy wanted in- Indy to be recognisable in silhouette yeah and he that's yeah. so he you know, um, does and it just yeah, it's just action packed. It's got everything. It's got you know everything you need. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean this thing. I, I always uh, and I'll say this to the day I die. This is probably the best intro scene ever. Yeah. As in terms of, uh, like you said, it's got everything you want, especially in, a, in an action adventure mm-hmm. film. Um, and it just for for the main character Indy, it just sets him up so perfectly. Yeah. The fact that he waits in, for a while to to reveal his face. Yeah. And especially him coming out of the shadows, yeah. you know. Uh, Play, paired up with John Williams' b- brilliant score yeah, in the yeah. jungle at the start, it's just—it's um, got everything you need from an intro scene, yeah. really. It does. And after all that, he still doesn't win because yeah. the the idol gets taken off him mm. by his nemesis Belloc. So, yeah, it's, it's just, yeah, I can't really good iconic. And it, once again, in popular culture, it's been it's been on loads, been oh, on yeah. The Simpsons, yeah. you know, it's been yeah. on family, it's been on all these. It's yeah. tried to be replicated as well, but obviously, it'll never. Will never be reached. No one will ever reach the same peak, yeah. you know. But yeah, no, this is one of the best, if not the best, intro scene ever made. Yeah, and it completely sets up the film. Mm-hmm. So yeah, brilliant choice there. Right, but that's also um, it. Kind of set a, um, a precedence for 
uh, Indiana Jones movies is it's almost like a little story before yeah. the opening credits so in, of itself yeah it does yeah because every it's almost a little self-contained story of every, itself. every other film has its own little movie at the yeah. start doesn't it you know yeah, yeah. And in particular, um, Last Crusade. Yeah. Where in, you know, Young Indy, obviously. Yeah. And again, that's that's almost like a little story it's in own thing, itself. Isn't it? Yeah, so self-contained film. So yeah. If you think about it, really, the intro scene doesn't have anything to do yeah. with the movie. It just it shows you Bella. It's a bit like the James, the way James Bond. Did yeah. It. You know, you have a little bit of the start that they've may, got nothing to do with the movie. Not have anything to do no. with the rest of the film. But yeah, no, it's so yeah. effective and it's so brilliant, so well executed, mm-hmm. and only only. Spielberg could do it, you yeah. know, but no, brilliant. Right, on to my next film is The Dark Knight. Not very surprising, is no, it, really? No. Um, right, the scene. We see some guys dressed in masks shatter one of the panels of a building. He shoots a harpoon with a line attached over the road. We cut to a shot of a man with his back towards the camera, holding a clown mask while holding a duffel bag. The camera zooms into the mask. A car pulls out in front of him as he puts on his mask. He gets inside the car. The men inside the building make their way across the line from one building to the other. We cut to inside the car. The two guys up front are talking about the shares, about how the Joker thinks he can have a slice even though he isn't part of the actual heist. The men in the car now make their way into the building. It turns out it's a bank. They start shooting and demand everybody to comply. The two men on the roof, one of them, as he blocks the alarm, the other one shoots him in the back. He moves on towards the vault. He starts drilling. One of the men gets shot by a previously unseen worker. He gets shot by the man in the clown mask and it cuts back to the man drilling the vault. Once he completes the drilling, he explains to another of the men that the Joker told him to kill the other guy upstairs once he's finished his job. The other guy says that's what the Joker told him as well. He shoots the driller. The guys round up the money in bags. A bus crashes through the bank walls and kills one of the men. The bus driver throws the bags of money into the bus and he is shot by the guy in the clown mask. The worker who was shot Ask the man in the clown suit what he believes in. He puts a bomb in his mouth and replies, I believe whatever doesn't kill you simply makes you stranger. As he says this, he takes off his mask and it is, real, and it is revealed that he is the Joker. As the Joker gets into the bus, the pin on the bomb is attached to the bus. As the Joker drives away, the pin is released, but it is revealed that it is just a smoke bomb. Now, first off, this is one of the greatest scenes, intro scenes in movie history. It's tight, tense and taut, and it really does get your heart racing. Once again, it shows us the character of the Joker, who he is, how he reacts, even though he's behind the mask most of the time. Nolan just knows how to do great characters, and he makes the Joker boss the screen, mask or not. While a lot of credit has to go to Christopher Nolan, we get to see the acting ability Heath Ledger possesses. How we can tell what type of character he is in less than five minutes while wearing a mask for most of the time, it truly proves that Heath Ledger was a generational talent. The intro shows the Joker to be a master criminal, and that he's incredibly dangerous. We see him execute a brilliant bang heist, killing his partners and taking 100% of the cut. If this doesn't show you that, he's, is he, that he is a competent culprit, I don't know what will. This whole intro scene helps by completely changing the tone from the previous film. This is darker, grittier and more character driven. I think that changing the tone at the, at the very start was the right choice, as you want your audience to know what type of film they're watching as soon as possible. It completely sets the tone of the movie perfectly. Christopher Nolan's a master of dialogue and he puts some of his best work into the film. All the exchanges between the criminals are brilliant, especially the Joker. He also, of course, delivers one of the most iconic lines ever in the, stra- in the Stranger line. We also get to hear glimpses of Hans Zimmer's kick-ass Dark Knight score, which only elevates the whole scene. And basically, it's everything you want from an intro. That's the reason why it's on my list. And that is um, 
my main reason it, it had once again like Raiders it has everything you want from an intro doesn't it yeah you know it's very cleverly written as well the fact yeah. that <clears throat> now each stage of the robbery he, he has other people kill like other people yeah. and so they're kind of cleaning up for him to, yeah he's getting them to yeah. do his dirty work so rather than sort of get them all together at the end and shoot them all he done as they're going along he's basically getting them to clean up for him and then the last thing he does is kill the last guy yeah. and so he can keep the money so, I believe yeah. I believe when uh, when before the bus crashes because uh, at this point obviously the, the people probably know it's the Joker but those guys don't know that the Joker is the one wearing the clown mask and the other guy, there's there's two guys at the moment, and he's pointing out, he's pointing out the Joker, but that guy doesn't know that that's the Joker. And he's like, well, he told me to kill you. And then uh, the Joker, obviously, behind the mask, mentions something about a bus. And he's like, well, where the fuck's the, bar, uh, the mm-hmm. bus? And then the bus comes crashing through, kills him. As they put the money into the bus, um, the geezer with the bus was like, where's the other guys? And then the Joker doesn't say anything. Still with the mask on, he just mm-hmm. looks up. He doesn't even he doesn't even look at him, does he? He just no, shoots yeah. him behind. Yeah. And I think as well, it's such a tiny little thing, but it's so effective. Yeah. Um, Joe, the the the, the grenade, it, yeah. it in turns it it actually is a smoke bomb, and it just shows that like playfulness. Like he, the Joker is completely fucking crazy. Even even in like killing people yeah. and committing crimes, he's still yeah. like laughing as he. Yeah, he, he likes that, doesn't yeah. he? You know, and, and yeah. he lives for it, you know. But yeah, such great character development for the Joker, and uh, yeah, it completely kicks the door the door off the hinges mm-hmm. and sets up a great film. So yeah, so these really ones on my list. Right, your last one. Okay, so my last one is Reservoir Dogs, nineteen ninety two. Quentin Tarantino, we both agree, is a master of dialogue. Yeah. A fact which is only further proven by the round table discussion which opens Reservoir Dogs. The first taste we get of the work writing comes from Tarantino himself. Without any visual, but the opening credits, his voiceover explains the reasoning behind Madonna's Like a Virgin. As we finally get our glim- first glimpse of the cast, the camera drifts around a table in a diner as the black-suited customers all chime in on the topic. As the conversation drifts along with each frame, the frivolities of each character are on display. Not once is there a mention of a heist. It's only when the talk turns to splitting up the waitress's tip that one disinterested party stirs up the rest of the crew. Everyone at the table is given a colour-coded nickname to help conceal their identities from the other criminal partners eating breakfast. We learn that the man refusing to tip is known only as Mr Pink, Steve Buscemi, a name which later makes for a humorous outburst when he expresses displeasure over his assigned colour. The biggest reveal about the mystery man, however, is that he doesn't tip. In his own words, tipping a waitress is considered necessary only because society makes it so. No matter the weekly earnings of the worker, she should have to earn that little extra. The scene does well to set up a discord between Mr Pink and another member of the table, Mr White, played by Harvey Keitel. It's only in the violent conclusion of the film that we're able to decipher exactly how much distrust was present at the table all along, making this opening all the more worth revisiting. Oh, first of all, I agree. I totally so agree that I mean, Tantino is the master of dialogue. It's basically like I think it's ten minutes, yeah, and essentially nothing. They're just sitting around, you know, discussing. Initially, it starts off mm. then discussing the meaning behind mm. "like a virgin." Um, this, this, uh, I mean, it, it's actually quite. There's some comedy funny, there yeah. as well. Harvey Keitel is yeah. very funny, yeah. You know, um, and then they they get round to talking about tipping and and how, why you don't tip and why society, you know, 
Saturday you demands you, t- you tip a waitress, mm. but you don't tip her like a, a burger, yeah, uh, like a McDonald's worker, something like that. So, yeah, but then again, it gives you an ins- an interesting ins- insight into each character, yeah, and it obviously sets up the, um, like I say, the mistrust between the discord between Steve Buscemi and and Harvey Keitel that later manifests itself in the film, and it just introduces each character. Um, and and their characteristics. I mean, what I can take away with it with it is it's like Tantino, whoever's part. Obviously, he's, he's present during the scene, but whoever's yeah. behind the film and behind the, the camera is just turned on like a camcorder and gone up to any yeah. table yeah. in any restaurant. It's yeah. just it's just so natural. It's just a group of guys yeah. just chatting shit, basically, isn't it? You know, and you, you don't think that they're actually just plan next thing they're doing. Yeah. they're gonna go and. and commit a heist no it's just a bunch know, of guys yeah. talking but it's so effective and like I said it's so natural yeah. and is so good with, with um, dialogue and yeah. it yeah it just and for a first film it's, yeah, no. it's just I mean it is amazing really I think I bet a lot of people wouldn't even realise that is if they've yeah. seen it that's his first film yeah. you know it's like how how can a film that quality be someone's first film but yeah it just shows what a master Tarantino is and mm. like I said it's just the one thing I can take away is it's just so natural yeah. and it's just so it's executed so well yeah. but yeah brilliant brilliant film well that concludes mm. our podcast it's a shorter one but yeah. it's because we had such a long one <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, yeah it's a little bit delayed but next week we're going to be revisiting the movie themes yeah which we'll do a part um, two yeah part two so we hope you join as for that one so that's all all that's left for us to do is say um thank you for joining us and i hope to see you next week thank you and bye goodbye